2. We will get there in a moment, but Ephesians chapter 2, I want to read the first section there um, in a minute. But brethren, as we think about this passage, contrasts provide for us some clear distinction between realities, and they're really helpful for us to comprehend in a greater way the truths that God has revealed to us. And as you think about it, we make use of contrasts probably more often than we realize. So, For example, this past summer, if you had gone out to watch a fireworks show, I can assure you that you waited until the end of the day when darkness was coming in, right? No one puts off a fireworks display at midday because we would not be able to see the beauty that they contain. Or how often do you go outside after, after a storm comes through and you see the bright, brilliant colors of a rainbow plastered against the darkness of the storm that is just moving past. Or maybe the best of all is going outside in, in the darkness of the night and seeing the bright stars shining in brilliance against the blackness of the night. And so we recognize that no one stargazes at daylight and the, the rainbows look best in the blackness of the storm. And so today I want to look at the contrast, perhaps the most drastic of all contrasts in Scripture, and it is the contrast of the wickedness of who we once were against the astounding results of God having mercy on our souls. And so what I want to go for today is, is this, that only in having an accurate view of the evil of our sin can we truly treasure the beauty and miracle of salvation. Because we don't want to think about God's mercy in mundane terms. We don't want to think about the eternal destiny of our souls as an afterthought in the midst of our busy lives. We need to have eyes to see the beauty of our salvation. And we need sometimes to look into the badlands of where we've come from to see our sin, to see its sheer wickedness. And remember that if it were not for the mercy and grace of God, we would still be there. And so those, I think those to whom this most applies are those of us who have grown up in the church. We have been surrounded by godly parents. We have been in, in and around the teaching of God's word most of our lives. And I think we are the people who most need the mirror of God's word put up before us so that we can see what our past truly was and be reminded of what God has done for us. And so this morning I want to look into the mirror and see the most alarming description of humanity that there could ever be. And as we do, just think, if it were not for the grace of God, I would still be there. I would still be a slave to sin. I would still be hopeless. I would still be separated from God. And so today I just want to look at this under two very simple headings, man's problem and God's provision. Let's read, I'm just going to read the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2. It says, And you were dead in, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy 
because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And brethren, the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2 are, are likely the most dreadful compilation of truths about the state of the human race apart from Christ that we can find anywhere in Scripture. I mean, Paul's like a boxer just swinging with one fist after another until we finally are going to fall down in defeat and recognize we are sinners. But then he masterfully brings us back and shows us a stunning contrast of God's mercy toward us. Alexander McLaren said of this passage, Nowhere else are there such sad, stern words about the actualities of human nature And nowhere else are there such glowing and wonderful ones about its possibilities. This physician knows that he can cure the worst cases if they will but take his medicine. And he is under no temptation to minimize the fatality of the disease. We've got both sides in this text. Man's actual condition, dead in trespasses and sins, and man's possible condition, made alive in Christ Jesus raised with him and seated with him. So let's just start here with man's problem. And I want to just notice in these three verses, the five ways that Paul highlights our deadness. We were dead in trespasses and sins. We followed the course of the world. We were following the devil. We were enslaved to our own passions. And to cap it off the horror of it all, we were children of wrath. Now that is how Paul describes us And that is another way of saying you were absolutely dead and hopeless. So he he begins with, and you were dead. And I want to just point out that in this context, the, the, the conjunction and which the chapter begins with connects it obviously back to chapter one. I think it's important just to think about this a little bit. Why is he going from chapter one down into this pit of depravity? Because chapter one ends with the glorious prayer of Paul, where he speaks of the supremacy of Christ, his power towards us, and his headship over the church. And then with the next word, he just falls off the cliff and goes down into the deepest depravity imaginable. He prays that we would understand the richness of the glory of the inheritance in the saints, and then he says, you were dead. Why is that? Perhaps it was his goal to set to so get our attention that by taking us so far down into the darkness of our past in these first three verses, that by the time he gets to verses 4 through 7, our salvation will just explode before us in a way that we had not seen before. And so we get this sharp contrast and therefore a proper view of God's mercy. And so consider with me first the, the word dead. This is so pointed and intentional on Paul's part. He's directing this statement towards all who are at the church of Ephesus. These are believers in Christ. They were part of a strong, healthy church. And he says, you were dead. And brother, we have to recognize 
These words are directed to each one of us this morning. And I think we can all acknowledge that it's very normal for mankind to minimize his sin and therefore minimize God's mercy. But Paul doesn't play that game. He goes right down into the pit of wickedness and says, do you want to know what you have received? Do you want to know how great your salvation is? Do you want to know how desperately wicked you were apart from God? You were dead. And this is not something we can avoid. We were all spiritually lifeless, no relationship with God. We were alienated from him. Deadness means no hope. There is no hope for a dead person as if by some means of coincidence, life could be given again. Brethren, I want us to see that we were in such condition spiritually that we needed a miracle. We weren't just a little bit sick. We were hopelessly lifeless. And I just emphasize this because I know how easy it is to read over portions of Scripture and and justify ourselves as the exception, right? I mean, it wasn't that, well, you know, I was raised in a Christian home. I wasn't really all that bad. That's the people, I know people like that, but it's not me. See, it's so easy to do that. But here's the truth. Until we see the cesspool of sin from which we have come, we won't really treasure Christ's white robes of righteousness that we wear. Until we've tasted of the bitterness of sin, we won't see the sweetness of salvation. And that's the point. So what does this deadness look like? From this text, I think we can clearly see, hear me, it doesn't mean lifeless in every sense. Because there are certain verbs here describing what we were doing, right? You can look down at the text and see. In our deadness, we were very much alive towards sin. We trespassed God's law, meaning we went past, we went beyond what God told us. We walked in sin, meaning we willingly engaged in that which God said is evil. We followed the course of the world. We went with the flow of evil and participated in it. We carried out the passions of our flesh. These are all action words. These are the things that we were doing. And we were not passively involved. We were quite active in rebellion against God. And you know, as I said, you know how easy it is to justify ourselves, reading ourselves out of the bad part of Scripture, reading ourselves into the good part. But here's something that we can't, we can't, we're faced with and we can't deny who we were before Christ. And we find unequivocally that we were spending ourselves for everything that was in opposition to God. And so deadness in sin does not equal lifelessness or indifference. It means active disobedience to the law of God. Dead in trespasses. That's to say we we violated God's moral law. We have gone beyond what he said. And we didn't do it in in a kind of excusable state. Well, we didn't know. It's our circumstances. We, We didn't recognize what we were supposed to do. No. How did we violate God's law? By sins of omission and sins of commission. First, we did not love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, which is the standard to which we are held. But then we also broke most of his commandments. All of us are guilty at some point in the law, 
And we know that if we are guilty at one point in the law, we are guilty of all of it. We were a covetous people. We lusted. We lied. We stole. We dishonored our parents. We had idols in our hearts that we worshipped rather than God. And so there we were, quite dead in sin and yet alive in alive in sin, quite dead in it, but alive to it and walking in it. We enjoyed it. We weren't phased by it. There was no guilty conscience when we failed to do a certain thing. There was no sense of guilt when we broke one of God's commandments. We just sinned and kept on going. That was us, building up for ourselves an everlasting judgment. And so maybe the objection may come, but I was never that bad. I never loved doing evil things. I was just not interested in God. That's all. And I would say if that's the case, if you're here and that's kind of how you feel, if that's the case, thank the Lord for his common grace, which has kept you from living in in extreme debauchery. But scripture does not have categories of people that need salvation. We don't read of the really wicked, the somewhat wicked, and the slightly wicked. All need salvation. And so just because we were not actually doing all the evil that was within our hearts doesn't mean that somehow we were a semi-righteous person. We read of this in Romans 3. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. That's the description that God uses of those outside of Christ, that you have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And so we recognize, maybe by the grace of God, we were kept from carrying out such wickedness as we see, but our hearts were no closer to God than the most vile sinner who has ever walked this earth. No closer. And so one reason I love hearing the testimonies of people in this church and anywhere, but here, here, here's the reason, is because every true Christian gets to this point. Every true Christian recognizes, I was wicked and I needed salvation. Too often, we flatter ourselves by saying, I was really no different than anyone else. And if you talk to anybody in the world, you recognize that is a common response. I'm really not that different. We compare ourselves with ourselves and admire ourselves for being less evil than our neighbor. And that's exactly the next point of scripture here. He says, the second thing Paul says is, he says, you were following the course of the world. And so we were. We were not standing against evil. We were not fighting against sin. We were blending in and looking the same as everyone else, which doesn't really sound all that bad until you recognize that that path was full of demons and drunkards and deceivers and doubters and all manner of wickedness. And so just this week, I have been meditating on how easy this is. Following the course of this world. Following them to where, brethren? Judgment. And while this is true of all of us, I, of who we once were, I also want to point out how, how true this is today and the danger we must be aware of because it is so easy to follow the world. 
to go with what's most popular, to be one of the crowd. It's so easy to go on the wide path, to be heading for destruction with the rest of the world. Especially young people. Oh, if you don't want to find yourself going with the flow. You, there are so many young people just drifting through life, being one of the crowd and finding their security in the acceptance of their peers. Acting as though by denial they can avoid the inevitable judgment of God upon the sins of the world. Young people, stand up against the culture, against, against what, what is so tempting sometimes. Be strong in the Lord is what we are told. We are told to resist temptation. And brethren, the reason we need to think about this and have someone say hard things is because it is so easy to go to hell. There is no resistance in our world to coast through life on the wide path to destruction. It seems like it's a downhill journey, doesn't it? In fact, Jesus said that the, the path is wide and he said the way is easy. That's an easy way. That's where everyone's, there's little resistance over there. But then you look at the Christian life and you recognize it's a, it's a life of opposition to worldly things. It's a life of striving. It takes some striving to enter the narrow gate. That's what Jesus says. Strive. And so I warn you, again, one of the great dangers of our day, I believe this, is not the horrific sins that make us gasp. It's the danger of just going with the flow. Satan's temptation is this. Just take it easy. Just, just get along. Don't say anything too radical. Don't. There's no need. There's no need to stand out. There's no need to carry that cross. There's no need. And with such reasoning, he just lulls us to sleep. And we float with the current of the world. Brethren, what we're seeing in the church today is, a, is that we are accustomed to seeing people drift away from godliness, even while they remain devout attenders of the church. Just a little at a time, just opening themselves up slowly to more and more cultural sins and claiming freedom. It, it, it's amazing how many times you can see those who claim Christ, and yet they live no differently from the world around them. The same pleasures, the same enjoyment of that which the Bible calls sin, the same impurities, but claiming Christian freedom. And I'm telling you, unless God intervenes, all those little, little decisions will destroy them. Because the devil is masterful at twisting the truth and putting us to sleep. And the current of the world takes us further away, further and further away from the fountain filled with blood, which washes all our sins away. Sometimes I need to hear what Paul said to the Corinthians. And I wonder what we need, if we need to hear it. He said, wake up. Wake up from your drunken stupor and stupor. And do what is right. Do not go on sinning. Wake up. 
And I wonder if some of us need to hear that, to see what we are doing, to not go on sinning. One of the crowd. That's not where we want to find ourselves because hordes of people, the masses, follow the leader of that cursed crowd, the devil himself. And that's the next point that Paul brings up. He says you were, you were trespassing, you were following the course of this world, you were actually following the prince of the power of the air. Think of this, lost people, each one of them, following the devil's leadership. And it was us. We were, we were aligned with the devil himself in opposition to God. We were following him, going his way. And again, I want us not, not to, to, to think about the reality of our past, but also people's current situation. People don't admit this or sometimes don't even realize that they were followers of the devil because he is so clever in his deception. He dupes people into following him by feeding them lies. He makes himself out to be an easy master. Isn't that what we find? He, 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 wants, he encourages people to have their own desires, to fulfill their own lusts, to follow the world, to live it all up. And all the while, he promises there's going to be a reward. He makes it look so enticing. But he's not going to deliver. He's going to destroy. Fourthly, we're reminded that we were no victims We were totally responsible for our sins. Paul says we were living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. Now, isn't it common, brethren, to find people, maybe even some of us, who think, well, you know, I can't really rescue myself, and so I I, I just can't be, I can't help being who I am, so it's really not my fault. I mean, everyone wants to blame their, if, if there's a distinction of our day, it would be this, that everyone wants to blame their problems on their past or their parents or their sorry situation, whatever it may be. But there are no innocent victims when it comes to our sin. We were not somehow coerced into living in sin. We were just doing what was natural to us. And that makes us accountable to God. So it doesn't mean that we were as sinful as we could have been, but it means, brethren, that we lived in our sinful passions, fulfilling our own desires. Self was the center of everything. Even when we did something for someone else, it was primarily for ourselves because we thought we could get some kind of good out of it. And so we were fully culpable for our sin. But then fifthly, there is one more punch that Paul lays out on us and it leaves us crying for mercy. And look at that next phrase there. He says, you were by nature children of wrath. Now, brethren, just a moment. Think of that. Children of wrath. You were a natural child of wrath. The child of wrath, he will have to drink the cup of of God's wrath that Christ drank in our place. He will have to bear all the punishment of sin upon himself. He will become a curse, not for a moment, but for eternity. And you were rescued from that, from the rest of mankind. You were rescued. Who did you think? The rest of mankind. The rest. This is everyone who is outside of Christ. Perhaps we could even say... And it is most in our world. Perhaps we could even say 
It is some in this room. For the rest of mankind is, is the kind old lady that we all know who rejects God. It's, it's the nice neighbor that we have who walks with his wife and has his whole life together, but he denies his need of a savior. It's, 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 it's the person at the grocery store who, when they give you your groceries, you can look in their eye and you know they're lost. It's these people that we pass on the road, most of them going somewhere on their vacation or whatever it may be, and they're all classified in this group that Scripture says is the rest of mankind under the wrath of God. And so we have to see, brethren, the point of all this is that we have to see that we were there, that hell had its mouth wide open to receive us, that the demons called for our just condemnation, and Satan was waiting to welcome us into an eternity of judgment because this is sin's payout. Sin is no frivolous thing. It is not to be, to, to be debated or to be tolerated because sin's wages are death, eternal death. Brethren, there is so much evil in the least one of our sins because we have sinned against a holy God. And sin brings God's just, holy, and horrible wrath upon people. And unless God makes us alive, that's where all of mankind finds themselves. And so, as just a reminder, that which the Bible calls sin should never find a home in our hearts for a moment without us calling out to Christ to abolish it. Because that's why we need to proclaim the gospel, to say that there is abundant mercy for the greatest of sin, to declare that a way of salvation is made, a fountain of forgiveness has been opened, because hell has to close its mouth at the sound of the gospel, and Satan has to relinquish his reign when Christ comes, because he has taken our sin upon himself, and we bear it no more. A way has been opened into the throne of grace, not by our own works, thank God, but by the works of another, namely Christ, who died, as Scripture says, that he might bring us to God. Do you see how, how, how our salvation is not just some upgrade to a first-class life? I mean, health, wealth, and prosperity are less than nothing compared to this salvation because Christ has saved our souls from eternal damnation, from following the devil, from being enslaved to sin, from being lawbreakers. He saved us. Amen? So, so there it is. Man's problem was that he sinned against God. That's all he did. Dead in sin. We followed the world. We followed the devil. We lived in our own passions, and we were children of wrath. That is hopeless and dead. And then we see God's provision. And I want you to see this verse in context. This, this after such a dis description, Paul says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive. Ephesians 2.4, I wonder if it is not one of the greatest verses in the entire Bible. Not just because of its content, but because of its context. These words are so precious. 
after all the punches of condemnation thrown these, in these verses, we get this blessed conjunction. And we see, here's the contrast. We see that something is changing. It's not going to be any more the same. It's a signal of change. And what I want to point out first is that the word following the conjunction knows the hinge on which everything swings. It does not say, notice, that the pastor did something. We don't live through our pastor. We, we, it doesn't say that we've become moral. Good works don't save us. It doesn't say that we've turned over a new leaf. Self-determination does nothing. It doesn't say that we went to church every week because going to church does nothing for us if we don't accept the message of the church, which is Christ crucified. But notice what it does say. It says, God, God is the one who had to act. He is the one who had to interject himself into our lives and change its course. He had to make you alive spiritually or you would still be dead in our sin. I mean, this is the word of contrast. You were dead in sin. Now you're alive to God. You were following the course of this world. Now you're following Jesus Christ. You were a slave to your own wicked desires. And now you have a new heart. You were a child of wrath. Now you're a child of promise, not like the rest of mankind. You were separated from them, called out from among them, set apart as holy unto God, a chosen race, a holy people. This is the change that God has brought about in our lives if we are believers today. It is a dramatic change. It is regeneration. It is to be made alive to Christ, to have a new heart, to have new affections. And this is what God has done when he made us alive. It's a dramatic change. I mean, if you're here this morning as a Christian, you have had a dramatic conversion to Christ. You believe that? A dramatic conversion. And sometimes we've paused about that because we think, well, I wasn't all that bad. I was just going around my life. I, 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 got, I got baptized and joined the church, and now I'm a Christian. But here's the thing. Perhaps that's true to some extent, but you were dead in sin. You were separated from God. And you cannot go from deadness to life, from hating God to loving God, from following the devil to following Christ and obeying his word without some kind of drastic change. There is a contrast. And friends, you, as a Christian, are a living example of the power of God. Your life testifies that there is a creator, first of all, and that there is a savior who recreated you. God changed you, and he made your heart new and gave you a new life. And so the Christian is a testimony of the power of God. Because man, although he can do a lot of things, he cannot create, he cannot recreate his own heart. Jeremiah said, can a leopard change his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. You see, man can do a lot of, he has a lot of ability to change. He can get tired of being out of shape and he can begin to work and he can do some things to get himself muscular and in shape. He can clean up his, his house. He can clean up his language. He can clean up all manner of things, but he cannot change his nature. He cannot reform himself to that degree. He cannot stop being enslaved to his fleshly desires. He cannot be reborn in his own strength. He must be acted upon by someone outside of himself, by someone more powerful than himself. And so let's think briefly about why this change came about. 
Because here's where we find the source of humility and gratitude and zeal for God. Why are you a Christian? It was not that you did any number of notable and commendable things for God. It wasn't that you straightened out your life or that you finally became serious or got religious. None of that. It was God's mercy, love, and grace that moved him to raise you from dead. Deadness and give you life. We read of these attributes here in verses 4 through 6. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive by grace you have been saved. And so I would ask you, have you thought recently, have you thought much and deeply about God's mercy, his compassion towards you as a lost sinner? Because here we have a picture of what God is like. And see, it doesn't say that he's merciful. It says that he is rich in mercy. Rich in mercy. He is overflowing with mercy. He has great pity and compassion towards his people. He is moved by this mercy to interject into their lives and save them. And I want us to see God's mercy as we should see it. Because I fear too often that we take this reality in stride. We hear of it. We sing songs about it. And go watch a game. And, 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 and the point was that sometimes we need to have a big black backdrop of sin thrown up. So we can see just how rich God's mercy was towards us. That he did not spare his own son, but gave him up. For us all, so full of mercy that according to Psalms 103, God does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquity. Christian, you have received an astounding mercy that he is dealing with you according to Christ's righteousness and not your own sin. And see, these are the truths that we have to lay hold of. And when we do, perhaps we will have the attitude that Paul has when he wrote, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one died for all, that those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And so God's mercy is an outworking of his love for us. Sometimes we see people in great need and, and we may have mercy upon them, give them a few dollars or offer them some kind of help, not necessarily because we feel a great love for them, but because we have mercy upon them, we pity them. But all that God does for us is done in love. We see God described as holy and righteous and absolutely pure. And then we read of divine love looking down upon his yet sinful people and loving them by stretching out his mighty right arm and he reaches down into the sewer of the depravity of mankind and at great cost to himself lifts us up, clothes us in the white robes of his son's righteousness. Brethren, God didn't start loving you when you were baptized or when you gave your testimony publicly, or any such thing. God saw you in your sin, and while you were yet a sinner, he sent his son for you. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love. See, some people see God as this cold, mechanical being who just pushes buttons and is just 
stuff happens. But those people overlook the most basic revelation of God. For God so loved the world, right? That he gave his only son. There is more mercy and love to be found in the person of God than we could imagine in a thousand lifetimes. And then next we should notice when God was merciful to us. It says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive. And I just bring this up as an encouragement for for those who who are praying for lost loved ones. God did not wait for us to get it together, did he? He intervened. He intervened into, even into our sin. And there's some gospel hope for us who can, who, which can help us to pray that God would intervene because your loved one's deadness is no impediment to God. He did this for us. He can do it for those who are still lost. And Paul briefly inserts this statement, which is heavy and weighty, but I don't have time to deal with it much. He says, by grace you have been saved. It's almost as though he, he can't talk about salvation without mentioning that it's indeed a gift of grace. It's all of grace. And friends, we need that reminder often that we're saved because of the richness of God's grace. Not, not of works, it's a gift. All glory goes to God alone. And I don't have time this morning to work through verses 6 and 7, but just briefly, just briefly consider what God has done after making us alive. He raised us up with Christ. He seated us in heaven with Christ. And he did this for a purpose, so that in the coming ages he might show us the immeasurable riches, rich, riches of his kindness towards us in Christ. And so this is a reminder that everything God has done for us has been accomplished through Jesus Christ. God cannot make dead sinners live apart from Christ. And so the question is, how? How can God do this? Because on one hand, we recognize that God cannot overlook sin and deny his justice. Sin must be paid for. Yet on the other hand, we see that he has promised to save his people. And so it is only accomplished by our Lord Jesus Christ taking the curse upon himself that we can be made righteous in him made alive in him and raised to new life. Christ is the channel through which all of the blessings in heavenly places flow to us. He is everything to us. It was Christ who took upon took our sin upon himself. It was Christ who died in our place. It was Christ who was buried in the tomb where we belonged. But when he rose from the tomb, we were raised with him. And when he ascended to, the he- to heaven and se- was seated at the right hand of God, we read that we are now seated there with him. This is Christ. This is the Savior. And he is a Savior for sinners. And so, as you find difficult times come, we must go back to the word and see the reality such as this, such as this and take fresh courage. That while we're living on earth, there's, there's a reality There's a reality of being seated in heavenly places. And one day, we're going to be seeing God's riches unfold before us for an eternity. Four quick things of application and we're through. First of all, acknowledge your sin. 
and then leave it at the cross. The Christian's chief occupation is to look upon Christ and find that in him we are indeed accepted and loved. However, we're continually reminded of the wickedness of sin, whether it be that which remains in our own hearts or the actions we've taken in the past. And that reminder is an opportunity to weep over our own sin, to mourn over the remaining wretchedness. But then with even greater thankfulness and love, worship God, who is indeed rich in mercy. Doesn't Jesus say, blessed are those who mourn? And so Christian, see your sin, mourn over your sin, confess your sin, but leave it at the cross and worship him who bore your sin in his body on the tree. Secondly, meditate often on what God has done for you. Christian, the one or one of the dangers for many of us who have grown up in the church is we don't always see how desperately wicked we were and how greatly we needed a savior. Someone said this, too many think lightly of sin and therefore think lightly of the savior. He who has stood before his God, convicted and condemned with the rope around his neck, is the man to weep for joy when he is pardoned, to hate the evil which has been forgiven him, and to live to the honor of the Redeemer by whose blood he has been cleansed. Have you felt the rope of condemnation around your neck? Have you, have you been jolted awake to the reality that you were on the precipice of hell, just another step and you were going into eternal judgment, but God rescued you and you quickly are overwhelmed with the joy as you realize the king has pardoned you because another has taken your place. So meditate often on what God has done for you. And then third, realize the inevitable judgment of the wicked. Brethren, hear me. To anyone who is outside of Christ, the absence of immediate judgment for sin is no comfort for anyone. Its absence does make it very difficult for us because we don't see the immediate results of sin. Very few people just fall over when they and experience the judgment of sin immediately. They just go about their lives. They lie and live on. They fornicate and keep on going. Nothing, it doesn't seem to bother God. They, they, they deceive people in business. They cheat on their taxes. They laugh all the way back to the bank. And God doesn't seem all that bothered. God says in Psalm 94, Understand, O dullest of people, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? I mean, so, so God sees and knows every detail. Nothing escapes the notice of the God who made you. So no one can take comfort in the fact that they have thus far eluded God's judgment. The Bible actually uses language that people are storing up wrath, meaning it's all accounted for. It's all accounted for. Nothing escapes his notice. So there's no consolation that God's judgment has not fallen upon us if we are outside of Christ. The only reason that we are not slain immediately when we sin is because God wills it to be so. 
He is so merciful and so gracious that he extends another day, another call to repentance, another call to hear and believe the gospel. And so if anyone here is outside of Christ, we see a God who is rich in mercy. And so I tell you, throw yourself upon that God. And fourth is just be reconciled to God. You know, we're all going to walk out the door, right? We're all going to walk out of here. And we can walk out as people condemned by our own sin, trying to stand under the unbearable weight of guilt and condemnation, awaiting the day we were called to stand before that judgment and receive our sentence before God. And if we could see the spiritual reality of the darkness of the souls of the unbeliever, we would see the backbreaking weight they carry. We would see the tears that they cry because they, they can't bear the burden of sin anymore. And so we must be people who proclaim the message of Jesus. If anyone thirsts, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink because Christ is a willing Savior. Every person here and anywhere around us, when we interact with them, they can, they can walk out with a peace of their soul, with, with, with a guilty, free conscience, to be free from the fear of punishment, to be free from the wrath of God. That's how merciful God is. It's far from God just saying, it's okay, everyone messes up. He states clearly, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow, because my son has stood under the hammer of my wrath and absorbed it all so you can be free. And so I began by speaking about contrast, and here's the greatest contrast. The gospel is the brightest star among the darkest of nights. It's the wonder of man, of what man can be when washed in the blood of Christ against what he was when he was dead in sin. Salvation for the chief of sinners. Salvation to the uttermost. To God be the glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this great salvation. We thank you, God, for this text which shows us of our own wickedness and depravity. And we pray, oh Lord, that you would cleanse us even more. Thank you that we have that open door where you say, <clears throat> if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a gift. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you stand with me, we're going to sing the final